I know, I know. Nobody wants to hear commercials before podcasts. Everyone tuned in to listen to me and Courtney interview Olympic legend, U.S. gold medalist Dan O'Brien. But I got to tell you about Silk City Hot Sauce. How long have I been telling you guys to order Silk City Hot Sauce? It's my favorite hot sauce. You know that. During these trying times, everyone keeps asking how you can help. How can we help the local businesses, maybe the small businesses? Silk City Hot Sauce is a mom-and-pop operation from soup to nuts. First and foremost, Silk City Hot Sauce is prepared only with locally grown peppers from Vermont. Jeff drives down to the farms, loads his truck with heaps of habaneros, cherry peppers, serranos, ghost chilies. Name all the peppers. He loads them up himself. There's several flavors to choose from, from mild to off-the-chart hot. Chipotle, Taco Fiesta, Dragon, the legendary Mango Madness, that tropical heat, heaps of mango, pineapple, exotic spices, habaneros. You got the hot experiment, roasted garlic, sweet onions, whirled together with carrots and habaneros. Got the killer hot, ghost, vitali, and habanero peppers with honey and garlic. Then you got the one that everyone keeps tweeting me about because I couldn't stop talking about, the cherry sriracha. It's mild and sweet, this beautiful, vibrant red that you put on ice cream. You put this on ice cream. Silk City is made in small batches to retain the highest quality and fullest flavor. Silk City hot sauce is not just hot. Every sauce is flavorful and delicious. That's what they're known for. If you want to support the show and enjoy great hot sauce at the same time, go to SilkCityHotSauce.com, enter SAFO, S-A-F-O, in the coupon box and save 15%. And because Jeff's a friend of the show and how much I talk about his hot sauce, you will not only save 15%, but Silk City Hot Sauce is going to give every Mike Sappho listener a free bottle of cherry sriracha. The famous cherry sriracha that goes on egg rolls and vanilla ice cream or chocolate ice cream. Whatever you want. So go to SilkCityHotSauce.com, enter Sappho in the coupon code. You're going to love it. And now without further ado, my sixth best friend in the world, Dan O'Brien. Dan O'Brien, what's going on, my friend? Thanks for calling in. My pleasure. It took us a minute to, to get together, but I'm glad we did. I look forward to having fun, um, you know, just getting through these pandemic days leading to the election. Well, that's what I was excited about. Pandemic, everyone's locked in, yet you were too busy for me. Well, I, I actually, my, I got a real job about a month ago, so um, I actually have to do some work because somebody's paying me. So it's like, all right, I, you know, if I got to get up and go meet somebody for lunch or go to somebody's office and check it out, then I'm more than happy to. See, I have my sunglasses ready, but where's the gold medal? Because I fig- figured it'll be dangling around your neck. I'm a little upset right now. Uh, you know, when you've had the gold medal for such a long time, <laughs> you don't put it around your neck. You roll it up and keep it in your pocket. Where is it right now? You know, it's in this house. I, I could, I could pr- certainly probably find it for you by the end of the by the end of the podcast. You don't even know where it is. No, I, I, I actually do know where it is because because <laughs> I, I take it to um, uh, speeches or uh, different events. You know, and they like like USA Track and Field stuff. I go sign some autographs. So I always have it, so I, I definitely know where it is. I had fellow Olympian Dina Castor on, and 
she didn't wear the gold medal either. If you guys don't appreciate the medal, you can send it our way because we've never had a gold medal. So we certainly appreciate them for sure. But you know, I, I think back, it's like, what are we in 2020? I won that gold back in 1996. And it's almost, you know, it's nine, it's 25 years. And it, it seems like it was four years ago, honestly. But you know, we, we appreciate them, but I, I think you appreciate the accomplishment more than the trophy. I, I guess I just want to always wear one. That's a problem. Yeah. I got to wear one once, actually. Funny story. Um, one of my friends was an uh, Olympian on the softball team in, uh, in Sydney, Australia. She was a pitcher. And um, we, we had a little night where we had a, a little party for her, a lot of alcoholic beverages involved. And uh, everyone kind of got to pass the medal along. And it was kind of swinging a little. And they are pretty heavy. They're heavier than, than you think they are. And uh, one of my friends might have got it in the middle of her, uh, right between her <laughs> eyes. And uh, it, it resulted in laid out, ice bag, huge welt. But, you know, I guess it's a good story. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whoever lets you wear that medal yeah. broke the rule. Because here, here's the rule. You can take a picture of it. You can look at it closely. But you can't wear it if you didn't earn it. Well, I think once a, a few adult beverages got in the mix, I think it was uh, she might have lost track of where the medal actually uh, actually was. But you know, I appreciated actually getting to touch one. But. So I'm yeah. the only one. Okay, I get it. Okay, so then <laughs> Olympian. Someday, someday, Mike, someday. Olympian, author, three-time world champion, Hall of Famer, coach, motivational speaker. Is there anything you don't do? Wow. Um, you know, I, I, I'm the only guy in this house that cooks, so I do that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a great organizer, uh, and I certainly, I'm not, and you know what? I just, I had a rough time in school. I don't get, I don't get math, you know, so that's, that's something I don't do at all, math. <laughs> when we were talking earlier on, maybe like a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, you mentioned you were doing a podcast. What's going on with that? Is that in the works? What's going on with that? Yeah, so um, with USA Track and Field, Adam Schmank and I, he's the director of uh, entertainment properties. He and I have been talking for a long time about a podcast with USA Track and Field, and we actually are going to start one here. We'll probably we'll probably record our first one in the next couple of weeks, and this is an opportunity for the public to get to know track and field athletes in a deeper sense. You see them run on the track. You see them, you know, for the five minutes or the ten minutes or the ten seconds that uh, that they get a chance to race. But there's so many great stories inside the sport of track and field and so many great personalities. So we want to take advantage of just, you know, the, the plethora of athletes that we have, bring their personalities and some of the causes that they, that they stand for uh, to the forefront. And so it's going to be called Track and Field DNA. And people can, you know, people can find that where they watch uh, track and field stuff like uh, Runner Space, uh, NBC Sports, USA Track and Field dot org. And are you going to have different athletes on it and learn their backstory? Oh yeah, absolutely. And then that is the goal is, you know, this, this podcast will travel. We'll do it from our homes, uh, you know, when we can, but you know, we're going to be at track meets. We're going to be at Penn relays, Olympic trials, you know, the Milrose games, things like that. What took you so long to write back to me on Twitter? Cause I wrote to you then and my, I think it was like a year ago, maybe or nine months ago. I get a message, Dan O'Brien. I'm like, what, what? I was shocked. What took you so long to write back to me? You know, I, you know, honestly, I don't know. I, I was thinking about it and for, I you know I want to wait till I got something to promote, right? Okay, of course, of course. You know, I'm trying to sell something. I haven't done a lot of social media because I'm a little in track and a little in fitness and a little in motivational. And it's like, okay, I need to narrow in on something here. Um, and uh, oh, during the pandemic, 
I was getting organized, getting my, you know, returning all my emails, returning all my messages. And I don't know how, but your message got shuffled to the bottom and I just, I didn't see, I didn't see it for a long time. Well, I appreciate writing back. So I do this podcast alone. Okay. Unless, unless I have a friend or somebody who's a huge fan of the person. So if I have on an astronaut, I ask, no, this is the, if I have an astronaut on, I ask guys who I know who fly. If I have wrestlers on, I, I invite old fans are. So I find out that Courtney's this monster Olympian fan. So I tell her about you. She was going to rearrange her schedule to talk to you. So without further ado, Courtney, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Courtney. Um, I'm a huge fan. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to bring it back to, I'm a huge Olympic fan. But I'm going to bring it back to me having the poster of you in my bedroom as an 11-year-old, okay? All right. <laughs> and I got to say, you were always my favorite between in, uh, Dan, Dan versus Dave. I'm not just saying that because I'm speaking to you right now, but you were my favorite. <laughs> and, you know, uh, you know, I got to say, this, this is an honor. I want to thank Mike. I want to thank you. You know, I've been looking forward to this. I'm even – I've been home – I literally got home from work about 37 seconds ago. But I put on my gear as quick as I could. I got on my my Team USA sweatshirt. I have on my Team USA beach volleyball shorts. I have my uh, I had this on, but it's a little too hot in my house. My uh, my uh, little handkerchief. And this right. handkerchief, just so you know, has never been worn in the United States of America. I- I've been to the last seven Olympics, and the only time I wear this is at the Olympics. So yeah. it's okay. it's um it's an honor it's an honor to be here tonight and you know that 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 poster it, I had a few posters up you were right next to Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco if you could uh, Bash Brothers oh. <laughs> wow so we're, up Bash- we're up there yeah yeah, yeah I it, and I you know I tell people that haven't been to Olympics oh. go to one Olympics and you become an Olympics junkie you know and whether it's winter or summer the summer a little bit more fun because there's more events to go to. Um, but that's fantastic. The fact that you got a chance to go overseas and see mm. these Olympics, it's even more exciting to think we're going to have an Olympics back in the United States in 2028. Oh, definitely. It was a bummer last year. I was all set to go to the Olympics and then everything got canceled because of COVID. But, um, you know, this, it's carrying over to this year. So I'm hoping I still have all my tickets that it's open, uh, to all fans because they carried everything over. So, you know, I, I said after I went to one, I said until I could, uh, until I keep walking, I'm going to go to every Olympics I can. Okay. Dan, is she qualified enough to be a co-host now with her fandom? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, another some of the other great events go to an Olympic trials because the athletes in the sport of track and field, it's the top three that make the team. So you get people diving from fifth place to third place. You get people just trying so hard to get through to the next round and make the semifinals and the semifinals to the finals. I mean, they are laying it out there to get on this team. It's really exciting, and not just track and field. Gymnastics, swimming, boxing, the Olympic trials are, are really, really spectacular in this country. And the next, the second best probably, uh, you know, um, just competition of the year. Awesome. And born in Oregon, growing up, many kids don't really – I know up here in New York, the Northeast, many kids aren't playing javelin and discus and stuff. Were you into any other sports or was it always track and field for you? No, no, it was not always track and field for me. I, I played all sports growing up. I probably did everything but play soccer. All right, my little brother played soccer. I just wasn't that interested in it. But I started little league baseball. You know, I think I was nine or ten years old. I just I got on a team, sat the bench, played right field. I got a little bigger and I got a little better. You know, and um, by the time I by the time I was fourteen, I had played um, school league basketball, and then I got into junior high and I played football for the first time in the seventh and eighth grade. 
Um, but then I, I ran track and field just kind of as a, as a side thing. I ran track and field just so I could hang out with my buddies. And I started in cross country and it was agonizing. It was ugh, the worst thing ever. I was always in the, the last, uh, you know, <laughs> I was the last pack, you know, second to last, third to last. And I remember it was in the seventh grade. I come, uh, I come running back from like a four or five mile run and I sprint to the line at practice and the coach said, you know what? Why don't you run with the middle distance runners tomorrow? And I was just like, well, what events are those? He's like a 400, 800. And, and so I moved to the 400, 800. And before I knew it, I was running the 100 and the 200. I was just, I just developed from a distance runner to a sprinter. And I, you know, I, I was happy to do so because I was not enjoying cross country. Um, so next thing I know, I'm a 100 meter guy. I'm a long jumper. And uh, I'm still playing other sports. Basketball, I would have to say, was the most fun for me. I like the game of basketball because you can play at any time. I played a lot of pickup games in college. Um, you know, you play basketball two or three times a week. You actually play games. I liked football a lot as well. I played football when I got into high school. Was you know fortunate enough to be on a high school state championship winning team. Um, and that was a you know that was a great that was a great uh, way for me to get to know team sports. And still to this day, I think probably the most fun I ever had in sports was being in that huddle, being on the varsity football team. Um, but track and field was one of those things that just always kept presenting itself, always, always came into view and showed me that this is your best sport. This is your best event. And so in the 11th grade, you know, I went from really a nobody um, in the sport of track and field to, you know, three months after track started, I, I was the fastest guy on the team. I was the fastest guy in the state. I won high schools, you know, I won the high school state championships and the hurdles. And then I was the favorite going into my senior year in the hurdles and the long jump and the hundred meters. And it was just like this. I had this three month development in the 11th grade in the sport of track and field that just made me really realize this is where my future is. I'm going to play the other sports as a senior in high school, but in the end I want a track and field scholarship and that's how I'm going to get into college. Now, Dan, I, I saw you have a lot of brothers and sisters. Were they athletes as well? Did, did they, um, did they compete as you competed or were you, uh, <laughs> Um, so I, I grew up on a farm. Okay. So I was adopted at a young age. All right. Uh, from Portland, Oregon. My parents adopted me and, and we lived in, uh, they lived in Southern Oregon. And it was just a situation where my parents were in a organization, a church organization that, uh, they were good parents. They didn't have kids at the time. They adopted, they adopted my first sister, Karen. She's Native American, uh, Cherokee Indian. And then a couple of years later, they adopted me when I was two and a half. So it was just my sister and I. And then literally two years later, they adopted another baby and another baby. And so we had four kids uh, originally. And then as we got older, um, my parents would get calls on, you know, a kid that didn't work out someplace else, uh, you know, a kid in a foster home that was looking for somebody. So we adopted two Korean girls when I was about 13 years old. And uh, so we were a nice little happy family of six, but there's eight kids in our family total. My mom had two biological kids of her own a lot, quite a few years ago. Um, my, bio, my mother's biological kids were 17 and 18, and they were kind of leaving the house as, as I got adopted. And so grew up with a big family. Um, my dad comes from a family of 10. It's pretty amazing. And of those 10 kids, eight of those kids have eight kids as well. I mean, it's, it's nutty. How do you keep track? (laughs) 
And my dad kind of got lucky with the eight. He didn't have any biological kids, but he, when he, you know, he married my mom. She had two, and then he adopted six. And so, yeah, really big family. But you know, for the for the most part, it was the, it was these six adopted kids that that really came up together. Four boys, two girls. Um, my little brother Tom, he's uh, four years younger than I am, and uh, he was an athlete. He wrestled and played football. Um, but no, the kids in the family, we did everything from 4-H. Uh, 4-H animals. My sister rode horses. Uh, she 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 had a quarter horse her whole life growing up. Um, so she did a lot of stuff around horses. And then um, a lot of the kids in the family played music. Um, my brother was in the band. I was in the band. My sister Patricia, who was uh, three years younger than I was, she was in the band. She played saxophone. Um, so yeah, we just had a lot of different interests. And we, I was lucky in the fact that um, you know, my parents worked really hard to allow us to try a lot of different things. Um, you know, we were not rich by any means. You know, it was my dad worked a ton of overtime just to support this many kids and, you know, put shoes on our feet. But um, my parents always made it available to me to try a lot of things. If I wanted to go out for the soccer team, you know, I could always, you know, I, I could always find a ride home. You know, we lived close enough to a school where I, you know, I wasn't hindered um, by by certainly not getting to try things. I don't think my parents would have been thrilled about having to get up at 5 a.m. had swimming been my thing. <laughs> um, you know, that, that they might have talked me out of that one. But, uh, no, I got to try a lot of stuff, and I think because I got to try a lot of stuff, I got to find the sport that I was good at. Dan, when you're in high school now, I have a lot of athletes on. If you're a junior in high school and you're a stud basketball player or a stud football player and stuff, you know your path. Like, hey, I'm elite level. I'm going to go D1. I'm going to Kentucky. I'm going to Duke. My dream is the NBA to play international. Was your goal, you said you became like a stud. You became elite going into, you know, junior and senior year. Was your goal just scholarship to college or did you know Olympian or further to, was that going to be your, um, like your career? Did you know that? Well, I, of course, like a lot of other kids, I always dreamt of playing in the NFL. I dreamt of going to the Olympics. And when I was 13 years old, you know, I got to experience the miracle on ice, you know, as a teenager in Southern Oregon, you know. And I it just I, I felt all the same things that, you know, the rest of the country felt and the pride and just what it must have been like to represent the United States, you know, to have that opportunity to be put on that platform. So I always dreamt about the Olympics. But. When I was in high school, nobody nobody tells you, you know, you're good enough to go to the NBA. You're good enough to go to the NFL. You're good enough to go to the Olympics. Um, and I, I, part of it's, I think, where I grew up. Nobody from my school or my area had ever gone that far. You know, I think we had a quarterback that, you know, went to San Jose State and started one time. And that was about as cool of a scholarship as I had ever heard of, you know. Nobody went to Kentucky or North Carolina you know, or anything like that. Um, so I, you know, I had to dream it myself, but it wasn't until I got to high, till, excuse me, until I got through high school and got into college that, you know, a coach starts talking to you and says, you know, hey, your schools in the decathlon are pretty good. Um, you know, your, your marks are, you, you can start kind of measuring them against other people. So, no, you know, I, I didn't really dream of the next level, but I knew I had to get a college scholarship. Otherwise, I wasn't going to college because my parents weren't going to write that big check. The Olympic process itself, and I'm glad that, listen, I knew all about you, of course, Dan. I always love doing a little bit of research on, obviously, the guest. The Olympic process is such a long, tedious journey. I didn't know you tried out in 88, and you didn't make the team, right? That's right. So I um, I kind of had an interesting uh, college path as well. 
Uh, my senior year of high school, uh, I didn't get recruited by a lot of schools, and the only school that gave me a full scholarship was the University of Idaho. So I ended up going to the University of Idaho. I visited, and I thought, you know, it was great. They had great facilities. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was exciting because it was eight miles from Washington State University. And so I thought, yeah, you know, maybe if I do really good at Idaho, you know, I can spend my last couple of years at Washington State University in the Pac-10 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that didn't happen. So I got to Idaho. I was a better partier and drinker than I was a student athlete. <laughs> so <laughs> my first semester there, I got bad grades. And when you get bad grades at the beginning, and this is something nobody really talks about or tells you about, Man, when you get bad grades the first part of, you know, college, it's tough to make it up. It's tough to get your GPA up so that you can be eligible. And so after my first two years at Idaho, I found myself at a junior college having to try to make up poor grades. And so I went to junior college and that year that or that quarter that I was at junior college, I did very, very well in track and I qualified for the Olympic trials, which is 1988. And so I went to the Olympic trials, but I didn't love the decathlon. I didn't necessarily, you know, want to do the decathlon. I wanted to be a hurdler. I wanted to be a long jumper. Man, I dreamt about being Carl Lewis, you know. <laughs> it's like, man, there's only one Carl Lewis. And, you know, I was a good long jumper. And I was a good 100-meter guy. But I was very good at a lot of different things. I was a good high jumper and a discus thrower. And so when I was at those Olympic trials in 88, you know, I didn't really have the idea that I was going to make this Olympic team. You know, I went there to, you know, win a couple of events and, you know, kind of show the, you know, try to show the guy from LSU and, you know, Dave Johnson and some of these U.S. decathletes that, you know, they might see me down the road. Um, but what I didn't, what I didn't know was going to happen was I got a chance to meet Jackie Jonah Kersey. Oh. We were on the practice track, my coach and I, and I noticed Jackie and I said to my coach, like, man, that's JJK, you know, and <laughs> yeah, that's her husband, Bob. And, you know, I remember watching Jackie on television, of course, at, at UCLA. You know, Jackie almost single-handedly, you know, won the NCAA championships while she was at UCLA her senior year, as well as Gail Devers. And so um, my coach introduced us. He brought me over and introduced us, and I got a chance to spend a solid 20 minutes with Jackie and, and Bob. And I told him kind of my idea. I said, well, you know, I do the decathlon, but, you know, if I can just run a little bit faster in the hurdles, I'll just become a hurdler. Man, if I could just run a little faster in the hundred. <laughs> man, I'm be out of this decathlon thing. And they really had a serious talk with me, and they said, you're right where you need to be. You know, you need to take the decathlon serious. The U.S. hasn't had a great decathlete in a really long time. And they convinced me that I needed to be. And I mean, I just, I just fell in love with the idea of being the male version of Jackie Joyner Kersey. And that was a world and Olympic champion in the multi events, but also world, world class in single events. And so I, you know, I think I, I only made it through the second event in the decathlon at that, at that competition. I had a, I had a slightly hamstring going in, and so in the long jump, I I over I overstrided and kind of tweaked it again. And my coach said, "Look, you're just here to get the experience." We watched the rest of the meet. We saw some incredible things. I saw Flojo run 10:46. You know, which is just like that was worth staying for. You know, it's like we could have gotten a plane and came home. And coach was like, "Oh man, we'll watch the events tomorrow." And you know, and at that time, I hadn't run that fast. And so on the plane home, I just started making a list. I said, my goal in the decathlon, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop trying to get out of it. I'm going to embrace it. But my goal, I have to be faster than the fastest woman in the world. 
I've got a long jump farther than the than, than the farthest woman, you know. And I went down the list and I said, look, I can do all these things. I'll, I'll never run faster than the fastest woman in the distance races mm-hmm. in, the, in the 1500 meters. I was like, I'll never beat a, I'll never beat the best woman in that event, but I should be able to be better than, you know, Jackie Jordan Kersey in the long jump and the hurdles and, and Flojo in the, in the hundred meters. And that was when my decathlon really took off. It was interesting though because. I remember being on the plane coming home from there, and I started saying, I'm a decathlete. I'm a decathlete. I'm not a multi-event guy who does single events and tries, you know, well, if I if I feel good, I'll do the decathlon, and if I don't, then I'll long jump. And But I started calling myself a decathlon, a decathlete, excuse me, and almost three years to the date, I was a world champion later. You know, almost three years later to the date, I was a world champion, and I, that just goes to show how much just embracing the title was, just accepting this is who I was going to be, or, you know, uh, just creating my path for that to be possible. And, and you know, I told Jackie that story, and I, I kind of, you know, I've kind of pulled her out of the, you know, pulled her off, off, you know, pulled her up on stage with me a couple times and said, look, this is how I became an athlete. It was because of JJK. Mentally, in 88, if you don't make it, you didn't go there with the intentions of making it. So it wasn't this mental, like, oh, my God, it collapsed. So it wasn't anything like that. It was experience only. Yeah, it was. And I think the real journey for me was um, I had to qualify to go to the Olympic trials. And I hadn't had a, I hadn't had a qualifying mark. And so um, my coach and my, my dad, my coach and I, we went to, uh, to Santa Barbara about a month before the trials and I had to score, I think it was 7,400 points in decathlon, which is, you know, pretty good. It's, it's a score that, you know, just a little bit higher than will get you to the NCAA championships in track and field. And I put down a great score and I qualified easily, but that was a challenge for me that year, you know, it was just get a qualifying score to get to go to the Olympic trials and to get all that experience. And I remember when I got off the plane in, in Indianapolis, um, the Olympic trials were, uh, at, um, IUPUI uh, college there. It's a really nice facility, but it was raining really hard. And so my coach and I, you know, we got our umbrellas and we went out and the men's long jump was taking place. We're like going to go see Carl Lewis long jump. But it was pouring rain, just driving rain. And Carl Lewis was up to long jump. And they just started the competition and the rain started coming down. And Carl Lewis stood at the back of the runway for what I thought 10 minutes. They have time limits now. Once they call your name, you have to go with 90 seconds. But he stood back there, stood back there, came down the runway, boom, 28 feet, 11 and three quarter inches. He put on his sweats. He walked out. He, you know, he made the team on his first jump. And I was just like, wow. Carl. He definitely <laughs> might drop that one. <laughs> Carl. And then the officials came out and they said, you know, we're going to put the long jump on hold. But they waited for Carl to take that one jump. And then everybody goes in the indoor facility and sits for two hours and, you know, everybody comes out, nobody challenges him, but it was King Carl, you know, but it was, he was just perfect at that time. He was probably at the peak of his powers. I, Olympians, fascinating because 88, you know, experience, three years of training now, and, you know, it's 92. I don't, if it's okay with you, we're not even going to talk about it. It's been discussed at nauseum, 92, unless, Courtney, unless you have anything to jump in with, with 92. I just gotta, I just gotta share, you know, it, it, it was one of my low moments. I, te- I cried. I, I was in tears. I, I was in tears. I, my, my dad had to, you know, my dad had to be there for me when that happened. I, I took it hard too, but, you know, but we went through it together. You know, I understand we went through it together. And, uh, you know, I'm better, I'm better because of it. I'm sure you are as well. Um, but, uh, I just have one question about the whole 1992. 
the the Dan versus Dave, where did that come from? Was that your idea? Was that Reebok's idea? Was that both of you guys? Like, so it was it was interesting. Um, in 1990, um, Dave and I are first and second at the Goodwill Games. Okay, and that was that was my first post collegiate year. So I I got done I got done running for Idaho in 1989, and then 1990, you know, I'm a I'm a quote a professional. And I go to the I go to the Goodwill Games and I lead for nine events and Dave beats me in the 1500 meters. He wins the gold at the Goodwill Games and that was kind of really our start together. And then the following year I have a huge breakout year in '91. I win my first world championship and Dave actually had an injury, but he made that team. He was top three. He, I think he was second to me at the U.S. Championships. He had a slight injury, so he didn't finish the World Championships. But that ranked us the top two decathletes in the world. And so going into the 92 season, we both were sponsored by Reebok at the time. We both signed contracts in 91 to run for Reebok. Reebok was a new shoe company. They were, they, they were an old shoe company, but they were trying to get, they were newly trying to get into the running space. They didn't have a good runner shoe or a cross trainer out there. So that's what Dave and I promoted. And so, um, Reebok, uh, asked Dave and I to come along to their huge corporate meetings in Orlando, Florida. And I remember getting to go to Orlando. It was the first time I was in Orlando. We were at, we were staying on Disneyland, Disney World property. And, you know, they pick us up in a limo and they drive us, you know, to this, these big, huge corporate meetings. And so over three or four days, you know, Dave and I go to, go to dinners and we have functions and, you know, we're there with other Reebok athletes. So, um, Rahib Ishmael was there, Dominique Wilkins, um, Roger Clemens, John Daly was there. And so, you know, we got to hang out with these guys, and and so I think it was the second to the last day we were there. Um, Reebok sent me a note and said, "Hey, look, can you come to these meeting rooms at at twelve thirty? You know, twelve thirty. We'd like to discuss, you know, your sponsorship and your sponsorship duties over the next year." It's like, yeah, sure. And so Dave and I showed up. His agent was there. My agent was there. And Reebok just pitched us on this idea. They said, we've got this idea. We want to take two unknown guys in an unknown event and help us promote this unknown new kind of shoe. And it was the cross trainer, the Reebok cross trainer. And you go back and look at the commercials. Oh, they're, they're a pretty kind of wild looking shoe now. Mm -hmm. But at the time I thought, hey, man, these are cool. And they were really comfortable. I could see you doing a lot of things in them. And they said, you know, our goal is to compete against Bo Jackson at Nike. And we're just like. You're using two decathletes to keep competing. <laughs> he said, you know, we want you guys to go on to talk shows. We want you guys to do commercials. Um, you know, are you guys are you guys willing to do this? And Dave and I looked at each other like, of course we are. Absolutely. And and they did everything they everything they everything they said they were gonna do. We shot the commercials in the last part of nineteen ninety one. They debuted at the Super Bowl in ninety two and a week after those were on the the week after they debuted on the Super Bowl, Dave and I were literally household names. And you know, I, I grew up. I'm you know, I'm living in a small town, and everybody knows who I am. But now, everybody knows all of my business. I mean, they know what street I live on, mm. and car I drive, and and um, you know, I I tell this story to young athletes, young track and field athletes, and I say, man, we had so much fun, and it was. I think it was the first time you saw a track and field athlete be treated like Michael Jordan. You know, we were treated like the top athletes, you know, that you see in in the endorsement world. Um, but we sat courtside at the Laker games. We signed autographs at huge sporting 
goods stores for hours. Um, and we were so famous, we got to go on the Arsenio Hall show. <laughs> and everybody, you tell that to kids and they're like, who's that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, it was the biggest thing ever back then. Oh yeah. You know, and so you explain it. And so, um, it was really a great ride. Um, we, I don't think either one of us let that get in, you know, get in front of any of our training. There were some times when we had to go to Los Angeles and reshoot some commercials or do some different things. But, you know, my coaches were on task. Dave's coaches were on task. I mean, Dave was in great shape. He put up the best score in the world in, in April that year. You know, and I thought, oh, man, Dave, Dave's ready to go. And I just, you know, I was training like a madman, and I had already gotten my Olympic trials qualifiers. So I just rolled right into New Orleans in 92, and, and it was, you know, all I need to do is, you know, make the team. But I think what happened during that time was you start to feel the pressure, okay? So one of the things that you noticed immediately was in a triathlon at the U.S. Championships, you know, you get family and friends, and there's a small crowd, and you show up there, and you're not competing in front of a whole bunch of people. Well, the day that Dave and I competed, first event was like at noon or 1 p.m. in the afternoon, and we walk into the stadium, and it's full. And it's like everybody's wearing white Reebok T-shirts that either say Dan or Dave on them. And we're like, where did these people get the T-shirts? And it was almost like somebody flew over the crowd with a helicopter and dropped T-shirts out to everybody. But all of a sudden, you start looking around going, man, people care about the decathlon now. This is crazy. Um, and so the crowds are louder and the stress is a little bit bigger. And I had a good first day. I was on world record pace. And even the start of the second day, I ran a good hurdles. I, I didn't throw the discus throw that I wanted to, so I dropped down below world record pace. But I lost sight of just getting in the top three. I started to gain momentum and think, man, I could break the world record. Or, you know, wow, I could break the American record. Um, just, you know, and I kept pushing hard and because I was on a roll, you know, and my coaches thought I was on a roll and I thought we were too. And we got to the, you know, we got to the third event of the second day, the, the, the pole vault. It's the eighth event. You're starting to fatigue. Your legs are feeling a little bit heavy and the heat really started to affect me. And when I say that, it's just, I mean, you're, t you know, New Orleans in July. It's just like, I don't know who thought about that location, but. <laughs> You know, there we are, we're doing it. You know, you're drinking a lot of fluids, and it, there was just a lot of sitting around. And the pole vault takes a really long time. Um, and I can remember, by the time I took my last warm-up jump, it it was almost a full hour till I took my first competitive jump. You know, guys jump at lower heights, and it takes a while to put the bar up, and the bar falls down. I mean, it's just, it's just monotonous. The pole vault can take up to four hours in the decathlon, just because, you know, in a, in a world-class pole vault, you know, everybody jumps between, like, 18.5 and 19.5, you know, in the decathlon, they jump between, you know, 13 feet and 17 feet. And so there's a lot of height progressions on two different pits that go on. Um, and so by the time I got to be, got into my jumping, it was hot out, but I was cold as an athlete. I just didn't get a lot of reps and I didn't get the run throughs I needed. And I just, you know, the easiest way to put it is I wasn't prepared for the pressure. I wasn't prepared for the heat, the humidity. I wasn't prepared for a third attempt. I'd never been on a third attempt, you know, at my opening bar, whether it was in a pole vault or the high jump. So it was a lot of things that came at me all at once. And everybody's like, oh, man, you, you bummed you let Reebok down? It's like, no, not really, you know, because I wasn't thinking about Reebok. 
I was thinking about Dan O'Brien making the Olympic team. And, you know, it's one of those things, it's not until later somebody says, oh, you know, because you didn't go to those Olympics and win a gold, you know, it cost you this much money. It's like, man, you're not thinking about that. You know, all you want to do is get on that Olympic team. And, you know, when it happened to me, I was just in shock, disbelief. Um, you know, and I didn't know, I couldn't describe it to you or what had happened at that time. So, I mean, it's taken me years of analyzing, you know, what did happen? What wasn't I prepared for? And, and because I got that experience, you know, because I won four years later, it's easy for me to talk about now, but I'm able to, you know, recollect that experience and give that, you know, give that information to other athletes, you know, and I've had a chance to talk to other athletes in other sports and, you know, be part of the U.S. Olympic ambassador program and really talk to young collegiate athletes about, you know, the headspace and, and dealing with pressure and overcoming failure and things like that. Dan, but it seems like looking at it now, remember, as a regular fan, you don't make it in 92, but you make it in 96. We're thinking, oh, my God, what he do for four years? But you were world champion in 93 and 95. So you seem like you bounced back pretty quickly, though. Yeah, you know, it was tough. And I, and I, I really kind of have to chalk that up to, you know, I was, I was young still. I was young in my, in my track and field career. You know, I had been to the Goodwill Games in 1990. They were in Seattle. You know, I went to Barcelona in 1991 to just compete, but then the world champions were in, to championships were in Tokyo that year. But that really was my first year in 1991 that I had ever been out of the country. Um, and so, you know, you look at it, 1990, 91, you know, I'm only a, quote, international track and field athlete on, you know, my, you know, two and a half years in. And so, you know, people talk about the devastation. It's like, well, look, I, I'm a young athlete. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to let this affect me. I have to forge a, forge ahead. It took me out of my game for the summer, though. I will say that because after I didn't make the Olympic team, it was like, okay, what am I, what am I going to do the rest of the summer here? Do I keep training? Do I try to go to another decathlon? Um, you know, I was really ready to wrap it up, but what I didn't realize at the time is I had all the pieces in place to overcome adversity. I had great coaches. I had great support staff. I had great teammates. Um, you know, the hardest thing for me was kind of consoling the people around me. You know, my best friends, the guys I hung out with, they, they were just devastated. And my father was devastated. And well, what are you going to do now? And oh, my gosh, you know, I, I got home and I had a hundred, you know, I had a hundred voicemails on my answering machine. You know, we used answering machines back then. <laughs> but you know, to listen to everyone, oh, my gosh, Dan, you know, but when I got off the plane in Moscow, Idaho, there were a hundred people there that embraced me and hugged me and said, you know, we're still with you. And it was, it was, it was great. You know, the whole town because of Dan and Dave knew who I was. And so the whole town because of my failure really rallied around me and it got me back on track, but, but I didn't know what I was going to do for the rest of the summer, but I got a call from NBC and they said, would you come to Barcelona and broadcast the decathlon? And I was like, you bet, you know, a couple of weeks in Barcelona, this is the consolation prize, man. <laughs> so, um, I went to Barcelona. I was actually dating a high jumper who made the Olympic team, and she and I got to run around Barcelona. And but my uh, my best friend from high school was doing like a European jaunt, and he was through Barcelona at that time. We hung out for a couple of days, and I had a really good time. But I remember a couple of just clear moments in the event itself. Um, uh, Kevin Young broke the world record in the 400 meter hurdles. All right, still to this day. Um, it's the longest track event. It's it's the oldest track event in the sport. 
It was, it happened in 1992. So Kevin Young comes around the final turn and I look down at my watch and I think, oh my gosh, you know, he's, he's gone through the 300 meter mark in about 34 seconds. I say, he's going to break the world record, you know, and he goes on to break the world record. And I'm just moved. I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's the greatest thing I've ever seen. Um, and then a couple of days later, um, a, a 400 meter runner by the name of Derek Redmond from Great Britain, he was in the semifinals. He was supposed to clear the semifinals and make it into the finals. But on the back straight, he tore his hamstring. He, he, I guess he ruptured his hamstring. And he proceeded to limp around the track. And you guys probably have seen videos of this. Oh, of course. I'm telling you. And he limps to the 200 meter mark. And he limps to the 100 meter mark. And then his dad somehow jumps <laughs> over the moat and the fence. And he's on the track with Derek. And they're walking the home straight together. He crosses the line. There's not a dry eye in the booth. And we're just like, oh, my gosh, you know. And Derek Redmond, you know, speaks about it today. And his, his reasoning was he had never not finished a race before. And it was just like, and it, you know, and his dad helped him. And he got disqualified, of course, because his dad helped him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm moved by this. You know, the, the Olympics is real. It exists. And it's so motivational. And so... At the Olympics, there was a, a meet promoter for a decathlon that was happening in September, about a month after the Olympics. His name was Mark Murray, this Frenchman, and he said, Dan, Dan, you must come to Talon's friends. You must, you must, you must compete there. We need the best. And and so I said, you know, I don't even know why, but I, you know, got introduced to him, and I said, you know what? I think I would like to come to Talon's France and do the decathlon there. And he said, oh, we would be happy to, you know, happy to host you. And I said. But I'm coming to Talon's France to break the world record. And he was just, oh, mon Dieu, oh. <laughs> so, And so right then, you know, I mean, I was, you know, I was enjoying Barcelona. But right at that moment, boom, I could just, I put a ton of bricks of pressure back on my shoulders. And we started training in Barcelona. And so my coaches and I, in the morning, we would go out and find a, a vacant track. And we would just get some, get a couple jumps in and, do some, you know, do some, you know, track training. And, you know, there I am, you know, three and a half weeks after the Olympics, I'm on a plane to Bar, you know, I'm on a plane to, to Bordeaux, France to compete in the decathlon. And, you know, I got off the plane and it looked like Seattle. It was like dreary and rainy. And I was like, oh, this might not <laughs> the way I want it to, but I got over the track and it literally looked like a high school or a junior college track when I got there on a Friday. Or with a, you know, when I got there early in the week, and then by Saturday, they had tents up and pavilions and skyboxes, and it was like, oh my gosh! So I show up that day, and there's 10,000 people in a stadium that seats four. I mean, they're they're seven deep on the rail, and, and they're just going crazy. And it was just a thrilling experience for me to go through those 10 events. It was a, hot, a lot of pressure. You know, I didn't sleep so much in between nights. I was just running on fumes by the end, but I did break the world record. And, you know, it was because I got inspired at the Olympic Games. It was because I saw Kevin Young. It was because I saw Derek Redman. And, and all I could think about was, man, that, that Olympic spirit just took over. And it's just like, man, I want to be down there. You know, I want to be on that field. I want to be competing. I want to be representing this, you know, representing myself, my family, my community, my country. And four years later, you did. And speaking of inspiring, take me to 96, because the moment for me is Muhammad Ali lighting that torch. What goes through your head? Because it seems like you're not just a regular – it seems like you're a fan. You know stuff. You're talking about Carl Lewis. You're talking about the greats. 
Muhammad Ali, I think Evander Holyfield handed him the torch or someone in between. Muhammad Ali up there shaking. What goes through your head as an Olympian, as an athlete watching that? So, you know, what was interesting, it was a whole day event. Okay, so um, I didn't stay in the athlete's village. So I, I was fortunate enough to um, to have a sponsorship and that paid for me to, you know, I to stay in a hotel. And people say, well, why didn't you stay in the village? And it's just like, well... You know, staying in the village would have been like going back to college and living in the dorms. You know, I, I hadn't done that in years. You know, I was used to sleeping in a queen-size bed on a, in a hotel by myself or, you know, my girlfriend now, my wife at the time. Um, or, you know, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife. Um, <laughs> you know, she, she came with me on these events. And so it was, you know, that's what I was used to and comfortable with. Um, so I... They give you your outfit at when you make the Olympic team. They measure you for your outfit, okay? So then when you, uh, you know, a couple of week before you go to the Olympics, it comes in, you know, comes in a big box and it's got all your uniforms, hats, and so you know you've got your you've got your outfit. And so you know, I showed up. Uh, Michael uh, Michael Johnson and I had the same agent, and so we showed up together. And we're so they they housed us. So the Olympic Stadium in Atlanta was going to be the new baseball stadium next to the old baseball stadium. So the old stadium's Fulton County Stadium, okay? And then they had that new Olympic Stadium right behind it. So we all staged in Fulton County. And so, I mean, you're talking every Olympian from every country, and we get there at 2 in the afternoon, and they stage everybody, and you're sitting there for one hour, two hours, three wow. hours, and finally it starts to get dark, and the parade of athletes begins. Well, the U.S. is the host country, we're way late in the alphabetical order, and so it takes another two hours of athletes walking in the stadium before the U.S. is turned. But about halfway through that afternoon, you know, I'm signing autographs, I'm taking pictures with, you know, people from the people from weightlifting and people from the, you know, what just different teams. And Michael Johnson and I are probably the mo the two most track and field athletes being asked to take pictures and. I, it, was, it was interesting because nobody really was rocking the cell phones, so nobody was doing selfies at that time. But it was just a lot of pictures and autographs and things like that. And finally, this usher comes over to us and says, "Hey guys, here for a little while." And we're just like, "Yeah, sure, that'd be great." <laughs> he drags <laughs> Johnson and I out of there, and he takes us up to the owner's suite, and we walk in the doors, and it's the dream team. So the dream team's hanging out in the owner's suite. And we're just like, and this is the 96, this is the 96 NBA guys. And so, you know, but the 96 guys were, you know, it was Shaq and Penny Hardaway, um, but it was still John Stockton and Carl Malone and David Robinson. And it was funny because all the young guys, it was Shaq and Penny. And, and then there was, uh, there was the, the point guard Hardaway, and there was another Hardaway. Um, and so there all these young guys kind of hanging on one side of the room and all these older guys on the other. But I knew John Stockton from my time in Spokane, and I had met Carl Malone in passing, and Dave Robinson was a little more down to earth, and so I kind of hung out with those guys. And But we, uh, we, we just, you know, we hung out for a couple hours, and it was just, like, so cool. So when it came time for us to actually enter the arena and walk walk around – we got to enter with the uh, with the '96 basketball team. The women's basketball team was up there as well, and that was really cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, Carl Malone was a great guy. He and I knew some of the same people at Boise State. And, but I remember the dream team or the, the NBA team. They were out there. The ceremony started, and they got to leave. 
you know, and so we're in the stadium for four hours and it takes us another couple hours to get through and in position. And then the show starts and that's another two hour show. But during the show, um, the teams gather together, you know, the U.S. team starts talking to the, you know, the Australian team. And so my, one of my training partners was an Australian runner. He went to Washington State University. I trained with him most every day. And so we got connected and we were sitting and watching the show. But all these things happen within the show. And they happen using U.S. Olympians. There's Bart Connor. There's Mary Lou. There's Mark Spitz. Bruce Jenner with a number of other guys. They walk in with the Olympic flag and they fold it, and, you know, and they do. It's it's real all ceremony. And so we're thinking, who's going to light the torch? Now, and I know this is a long story to get to who's going to light. No, the no, this is awesome. But, yeah. but you know, we're talking about who's going to light the torch, and we think about all the great Olympians who have come into the stadium. And we did see Evander Holyfield, and we did see Bruce Jenner, and we did see Rafer Johnson, and, you know, it's just like we saw Mark Spitz. We saw Mary Lou Retton, and I couldn't think, who's going to light the torch? And finally, when it was revealed, I mean, it was the biggest reveal of the games. Muhammad Ali comes out, and everybody is absolutely floored. I mean, just floored, and we said, of course. Of course, Muhammad Ali. I mean, tears in our eyes and the flash bulbs are going crazy. And my buddy and I were hugging. It's like, Muhammad Ali, man. And so, yeah, he gets, you know, he lights the torch and the games are underway. And, you know, it was just such an emotional night. But what I think about is the U.S. gymnastics team didn't get to go to the walkthrough. Um, you know, if you competed the next day, some of the swimmers didn't go get to walk through. And I just think, what a shame that these athletes, and so if somebody were to say to me, it's like, well, maybe you should rest and not go to the opening ceremonies, it's like, you know, unless I was competing the very next morning, you know, I, I had to, I just, I needed to experience it all, you know, I did, but I didn't compete for, you know, nine, eight, nine, ten days, I got to go swimming, and I was there when the U.S. Magnificent Seven won the gymnastics gold, you know, it was cool, my wife and I were sitting there, and it was just like, we got to see it, man, it was just so exciting, and so by the time I got to compete, man, I was, I was revved up, I just, I couldn't wait for it to be my turn. You actually, so I make little bullet points, Dan, and you hit my next one, what day did you compete on, day nine, and what do you do to occupy your time, because you're amped up, you watch Muhammad Ali do that, you're amped up, you're ready to go, you're like, you know, a spitball of fire. You want, and you're just hanging out. You're watching other people go. Are they motivating you watching the other athletes do it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I got to go to swimming. And I, I said I went to gymnastics. So I went a couple of days of swimming. But your days, you try to stay on the same schedule that you would if you were at home. And I had nine days to go. So of those nine days, six of them were training days. And so we wanted to train a couple days. We did two days on and one day off and two days on and one day off until we got to about three days out, two days out. And then we said, okay, well, now we're going to shut it down. And I even remember one week before I competed, I uh, they had a, they had a, like a, like an inner squad, you know, inner squad type of meet at Life College. That's where a lot of people were doing their training. This is a beautiful facility. It's a chiropractic college kind of in the, in the middle of nowhere there in Atlanta, but a lot of people were going there and I, you know, I ran a good hundred meters and I ran a 300 meter time trial. And, but I remember being in the weight room about five or six days prior to the Olympics and I got my best lift ever. So I do dumbbell bench and, um, you know, I had gotten the hundred meter dumbbells in each hand a few times before, but that day I was just like jack type and excited. <laughs> I got the I got the I got the the centuries 
for 10 each. And it was just like, boom, boom. And I got up and my coach, man, you never did that before. You know, it was just like, oh, I'm ready. Let's <laughs> just get me out there. But it was stressful. You know, those games were stressful. One question with the decathlete athlete, and the reason I, didn't, I never did the decathlon, Dan, I know you looked at me, you see my body, you're like, I see athlete. But the only reason I told you javelin, New York City growing up here, how much time and mentally how do you deal with, you have 10 disciplines, you have 10, how do you juggle all that? Forget, forget about the two weeks at the Olympic ceremonies. Those years and years, how do you juggle hurdles, meters? How does that work? Well, and I think that's where that's where it takes an experienced coach to help somebody get through a program. And so when you talk about, you know, there's only a handful of great college decathlon coaches and even less elite decathlon coaches, guys who can train at the Olympic Training Center or, you know, or that are just that are just training elite decathletes or heptathletes in the country. And so I was lucky. I, I hooked up with Rick Sloan at Washington State. He was the head coach at Wazoo at the time. I just, I still lived in Idaho, but I just drove to Washington State. It was seven and a half miles. Um, but Rick Sloan was a 1968 Olympian. He was a decathlete in 68 when Bill Toomey won. Um, and he, there was no real, after he went to the Olympics, there was really nothing else for him. So he went directly into coaching. But he had been a multi-event and a throws coach for years. And so I was in good hands. But you juggle it in the same kind of manner that you do the decathlon itself, um, except you don't do as many events each day. So every day I would run in the morning, I'd take a break for lunch, and then I would do three or four field events, usually three field events in the afternoon. Um, and if I didn't run in the morning, then I would start my day at about noon, and I would do a couple field events, and then I would have a hard running workout at the end of the practice. But you were constantly just throwing a few field events in there. And we got on a routine where my Monday, Wednesday, Friday workouts were always the same, and my Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday workouts were always the same. But for me, it was more of a frequency of training, not depth or length of training. Rarely ever did I spend more than an hour in any event. But it was, you know, I knew in a couple of days I was going to do it again, in a couple of days, and not more than two or three days would ever go by that I high jumped or threw the shot put or threw the javelin or pole vaulted. And I think that's what kind of gave me the edge over my competitors when, you know, some guys say, oh, yeah, I pole vault on Tuesday. And they pole vault Tuesday for two hours, but then they don't pole vault again until the following Tuesday. And I trained like I was competing in a decathlon. So I moved from one event to the next. And I think that just that was something that just gave me an edge. But it also just kept me in touch with a lot of the field events. What did you sacrifice the most? Because this is athletes like you on this level that very few, a handful of people ever, what'd you sacrifice the most? Because you were addicted to it. You were addicted to either the competing. That was your addiction. What'd you sacrifice the most? Well, I, I, you know, and I wouldn't say it was my addiction. I love training. The competitions were hard and kind of, you know, not so fun. Um, you know, they, they got, you got great rewards for it, but um, I just, I loved my job. I loved waking up and challenging myself on the track or, you know, pushing myself in the weight room. I think the types of things that you sacrifice are your time with family and friends, um, personal relationships. You know, I, I dated people, but I never really invested in a, in a, in a serious relationship, you know, and everything, everything came second to what it was that I was trying to accomplish. And I'll never forget, you know, I, I felt bad for a lot of years because I just would, I lived in Moscow, Idaho, but I grew up in Oregon. When I became a professional athlete, when I, be, when I started really pushing for the Olympics, I didn't go home to Oregon for Christmas. 
you know, so I just, you know, why? Because uh, do I, you know, 10 days of not training indoors, I need that indoor training. But I remember watching um, um, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Pumping Iron DVD, and um, Arnold talks about, you know, him getting ready for his seventh Mr. Olympia. He gets a phone call, and he's, it's his mother. He says, mother, you know, he's, his mother says, Arnold, your father passed away. And he was just like, oh, you know, he was in bad health. I'm so, I'm so sorry to hear that. And she said, you know, look, when are you coming home so we can have the funeral? And he said, I can't. I can't. Wow. I can't stop training at this particular time. I'm six weeks out from the Mr. Olympia. He says, my father's gone. There's nothing I can do about it. I need to stay here. And so I look at that and think, oh, you know, that, that was, that was like a sacrifice for him. But, you know, that was the same for me. It, you, you really do sacrifice time with family and friends. And, but you also, I think, as an Olympic athlete, when you are there training and your pursuits are the Olympic Games, and whether it's one Olympics, two Olympics, three Olympics, when you get done with the Olympics, you have to start a business career. You have to start your life when all of your friends and your peers as soon as they got out of college, they went into the workforce. You're 10 years behind, mm -hmm. you know. So you're 10 years behind on having your kids. You're 10 years behind on, you know, working your way up the corporate ladder. You're 10 years behind, you know, unless you've had a very, very successful Olympic career. You know, you have to find a job. So, so th those are the types of things. And and when I'm when I'm even watching the Olympic Games, I'm you know I'm in the media area at the in London. And I'm looking around and I, and I think to myself, oh, you know, to be 25 again and just to be able to know this is what I was doing for 10 years. It, it just it just it made me it kind of made me, you know, forget about my mortgage and forget about, you know, <laughs> thing that was that important. It's just like, oh, I remember waking up and only thinking about training. And it was it was a great feeling. But, you know, it's your um you know, it, you're you're putting your life on hold so that you can pursue your Olympic dreams. And you pursued them to a gold medal. When was the event? Was it event eight, nine, ten? Because I actually don't know the answer that you knew you were going to win gold, that all you had to do was finish up, or was it down to the last event? Um, you know what? It was <laughs> it was questionable through nine events. And it was questionable because of this spunky little German guy. He wasn't that little. He's actually a big guy, but he was young. And Germany always has a contender. They always have a contender or two in the decathlon. They won the gold in 88 with Christian Schenk. Um, and they have a really solid, just a, a Zen, it's called Team Zenkampf. Zenkampf is, means many battles in German, and they always have a really strong national team. And I had heard about this kid, Frank Busman. He had done well at the Gotsis Invitational in Austria earlier that year. That's where Germany selected their 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 Olympic team. And he had he was he was a good hurdler. He was a good long jumper. You know, he wasn't so great in the throwing events. He wasn't so great in the pole vault. Um, I had been jumping well, you know, high jumping well, pole vaulting well. I had gotten over the failure in '92, and I thought, you know, if I just do what I'm supposed to do, I'll win this easily. I ran a good hundred. My long jump was okay. It actually was my worst long jump in, in the last two years, you know, but still it was still pretty, it was just okay based on other people, you know, and I was doing well, but I just, I hadn't had a personal best. I hadn't had a big, big event where everybody went, oh man, okay, no, Brian's got this thing locked up. I just was consistent, consistent. And so on the last event of the first day, I won the 400 meters outright. I ran the, I ran the best 400 meters. But then I woke up the second day, 
and Frank Boosman breaks the decathlon world record in the hurdles. <laughs> and I was just like, what on earth is this guy doing, man? He's not going away. And he had a good discus, and then he had a good pole vault. And then out of nowhere, he has like a seven-meter personal best throw in the javelin. I mean, he's supposed to be like a 50, he's like a 54-meter javelin thrower, a 52 or 53, and I'm thinking my coach is like, after the pole vault, my coach is like, all right, man, you just do what you do in the last two events. And the, and the javelin was an event that I was getting better at. I just, every year that went by, I got better. Every event that came in, it's just like I, I understood a little bit more. Um, and so I'm in flight B, and flight A is out there on the field, and I'm watching it on the screen in kind of the medical area, and it's just like Boosman takes the throw and I, it goes out and lands past this mark. And I'm going, what's that mark out there? It's like, dude just threw 67 meters. It's just like his best was like 62 something. Wow. It was just like he just, you know, he just added an extra 100 points on his score that he normally wouldn't have had. And so I'm just like, oh, okay, this, is, this guy just won't go away. And so then before the javelin, my coach whistles me over to the side, you know, and he's just like, Boosman got a PR in the Java. He says, we need a PR in the Java. And I was like, trust me, I know what I was watching. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, all right, man, let's go get it. And so it was it was in doubt through nine events. Okay, by the time we got to the 1,500 meters, you know, I needed he needed to beat me by, you know, a minute and 45 seconds, which wasn't going to happen. He ran hard, and, he, you know, he was a better 1,500 meter runner than I was, but it was, you know, it was one of those just like, oh my gosh, this isn't, this is, this hasn't been easy. But you know, it, you, nobody wants it easy in the Olympic Games either. How'd you celebrate winning the Olympic medal? Because it's like winning the heavyweight championship of the world in boxing. You are the top of the world. You are the the head guy. How do you celebrate? So, um, so in the stadium, what was what was really cool is, you know, we're in Atlanta. Uh, it was so fun to have the Olympics in the United States, and you know, I can remember early on in the competition before I even competed. Um, Randy Barnes won the won the shot put competition, and I was walking down the street behind him, and people were pulling up in their cars, and they were, yeah, you know, gold medal USA, and they were going crazy, and I thought it was pretty exciting, you know. So um, I was, you know, I was ready to I was ready to do my thing, and um, wrestler Matt Gaffari got the silver. Um, the Russian guy who you know didn't lose for years, um, Karelin beat him for the silver medal. And I saw Matt at a breakfast just a couple of days before I competed. And the guy's gigantic. He's a heavyweight guy. I, you know, he gave me a hug and he held me and just cried and said, don't leave anything out there. You can't leave anything out there. He's just like, oh, my gosh, just, just leave it all out there. And I just, you know, remember moments like that. And so, um, you know, by the time I got through day two, I was exhausted. But for years, you think about what's it going to be like? What's it going to be like when I cross the line? What's it going to be like? You know, uh, Bruce Jenner got the little flag and, you know, Bill Toomey, you know, gave a peace sign. You know, just, just think about the different people and how they celebrated. And for me, thinking about it, going through 1992, I crossed the line and just immediately sobbed. And so, you know, I'm at the finish line and I'm crying. And it's just it was relief, relief. Oh, my gosh. I overcame 92. I've thought about this for years and years. It's not anything like I thought it would be, but it was still glorious nonetheless. So you, you know, immediately your coaches, my girlfriend, my coaches are just like, you know, quick, quick into the stands, hugging those guys. And then you do your victory lap. 
you know, mom's sitting on this side of the stands, dad's sitting on the other side, you hug and find them, and the decathletes do a victory lap together. And we were the last event of the night. 100,000 people in the stadium, and so we got back, I got into the mix zone, I did my interview with Chris Collinsworth, and I was a little bit disappointed in Chris Collinsworth, because Dwight Stones has interviewed me for years. And all of a sudden now, it's just like, where's Dwight? He's like up in the booth. Chris Collinsworth was doing the interviews, and it's like, all right, I guess Chris is all right. Um, but we go underneath, and the, this lady comes rushing into me, and she says, we got to get you through drug testing. And I was just like, well, you know, I've been in the decathlon. I'm a little dehydrated, and she's like, you know, so I got, I got a drug person with me. And so um, she's like, well, just try, just try to go. And it was just like, oh, you know, I drank a bunch of water and I was able to go. And she said, we're going to give your award to you tonight. And I thought, uh, we were the last event. Everybody left, <laughs> you know, the, we did the last run. You know, they saw the victory lap and they started to file out of the stadium. She's like, nope, we're going to give it to you tonight because usually you come back the next day. And like at the start of the evening session on the next day, they give you your award in front of everybody. And it's, But that morning of, I didn't pack my ceremonial gear because I thought there's no way if I win this, they're going to do it tonight. They're going to wait until the next day. And so I didn't have any of my stuff. So it's, 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 it's sweatpants and and a top, you know, and you're like, and so lady comes over, Michael Johnson won the 200 that night. Carl Lewis won the long jump. And she's like, these are Michael Johnson's. This is Michael Johnson's top. And these are Carl Lewis's bottoms. And I was just like, okay, man. So I wore Carl Lewis's bottom, Michael Johnson's top, and then they line you up and they march you back out there. So I ran my victory lap, I peed in a cup, and then I go out for my, I go out for my victory ceremony. And as I walk out back out into the stadium, the hot Atlanta night, nobody had left the stadium. It was still 100,000 wow. people. Oh, and everybody cheered. And you're on the stands. And and what's interesting is. You think to yourself, five years ago I dreamt about this. You know, two months ago I dreamt that. You know, you lay in bed and stare at the ceiling and think, what's it going to be like? What's it going to be like? And there I am experiencing it. And you're so tired. I mean, I, I, all my tears were gone. It was just like I got to share the national anthem with 100,000 people in Atlanta Stadium, in, in Olympic Stadium. So it was it was really cool. And then, like, immediately when the national anthem goes – they pump, they, they throw in village people, YMCA, everybody's going crazy, and I'm on the victory stand, I'm doing YMCA, yeah, it was just the funniest dang thing, so, so after that, though, um, because Michael Johnson and I, we had the same management group, um, there was a huge celebration at, um, uh, you know, what I, it was either Planet Hollywood or the Hard Rock Cafe, you know, so I think it was the Hard Rock Cafe at the time. And so, I mean, you know, we go to the Hard Rock Cafe, we see celebrities, like first, like Helen Hunt comes over to us and says, hey, congratulations, you know, takes a picture with Michael Johnson and I, and, you know, but by then it's one in the morning, you know, my mom is not young, she comes over and gives me a hug, and, you know, everybody, I see, I got a bunch of family, and, you know, there are people on the guest list trying to get in outside, and it's just nutty, so, but we were at, we were at, yeah. I think it was playing Hollywood, I, you know, but we were there till four in the morning, you know, Michael Johnson and I with this family, friends, eating, drinking and having a great time. And um, but what was interesting about it all was I always thought the gold medal was going to change me somehow. You know, 
all those years trying to get after it and think about it. And she's like, man, when I win this gold medal, it's just, I'm just going to be different. You know, I just, I just don't know, you know, how, but, you know, I figured when Rafer Johnson won a gold medal, a, a constellation appeared in the sky after he won or something, you know. Um, but I remember, I, you know, I went to bed at 4 in the morning and I woke up at 9.30 or 10 and I didn't feel any different. <laughs> You know, I look over on the bedstand, and it's just like, I'm a little, you know, I'm dehydrated, um, but I just, I wasn't any different. And I was almost shocked or disappointed that I just, I didn't feel, I didn't feel awesome, you know. I just, I wasn't happier. I wasn't, you know, I just, I was, it was over, and I got to experience a lot of cool stuff afterwards. But, but that was, that was the thing. I just, because you dream about it, and and there is a little bit of a letdown. You know, people talk about this. And every year I experience it, though, whether it's an Olympics, uh, World Championship. You know, I get to late summer and go to the World Championships, and then I would come home and just go, ugh. You know, uh, and you're, you're bored for five or six weeks till you have to start training again. There is a letdown. And the next day was a letdown because I won. You know, that goal of waking up and accomplishing something is taken away from you momentarily. Let me ask you a question now because, like you said, you're the champ now. For the rest of your life, you're a Dan O'Brien gold medalist, the, the cream of the crop. Athletes now, and Dan, very few athletes are like you and I that are on this elite level. As a casual fan, you see guys like Michael Phelps, you see Bolt, you see guys that are breaking records at levels we've never seen before. Are, is the human body, like, pushed to its limits? Like, can we keep breaking records? It, it, every Olympic game it's fascinating me how that millisecond, can you keep getting better, the human body? Well, what I, what I think happens is we learn how to get better. We, we learn, we condition ourselves to expect a little higher result, and therefore we're getting that higher result. You know, I think Usain Bolt, you know, he, he blasted the world record in the 100 meters, okay? And that's going to be a tough record for anybody to break. Um, because he brought so many things into it that I, I think just made it possible for him to run that fast. He was a, he was a great technician. He was, he was, he had great size. He had great power. And then on top of it, he had this really fantastic training system. All right. So the Jamaicans have been perfecting sprinting for, you know, for dozens of years here. And so it all came together for him, and I don't think we'll see the world record in the 100 meters go down anytime very quickly. But, you know, I thought nobody was going to break the world record in the 400 meters. Michael Johnson ran about as fast as I thought anybody could run, and then Wade Van Niekerk, you know, comes along out of lane eight and breaks the record. But I think when you put new training protocols in place, and up until a certain point, going to the Olympics wasn't a profession, okay? It was something you did after college, you went to one or two games, and now all of a sudden now we get into the 2000s, and Allison Felix and Michael Johnson and Michael Phelps, and now we got gymnasts that are going to multiple Olympics, and it's, it's become a profession in its own, so people are taking better care of themselves, and they're not leaving it all out there, and you know they're, they're not pushing themselves in a four-year period. They're pacing themselves, and they're having longer careers, and sustaining now you've also got you know i was coached by a collegiate coach you know i think i would have had another olympics or two in me had i been coached by a non-collegiate coach who had the time who who you know who was as professional as i was i loved being in the collegiate system i thrived in it because it kept you ready all the time but 
you know, Ashton Eaton, he, you know, he had a guy who just trained him and his wife. And that was his job. Every day, all day. Recovery, warm up, training, boom, boom, boom. And, you know, he made a good living. He made a good living doing that. And so I think, oh, yeah, I could have gone to another Olympics or two had I just taken more of a professional mindset. So, um, you know, I, yeah, I think biomechanically we're getting better. Genetically, eh, maybe not so much. Maybe we're staying the same. In the distance running, shoes are making a big difference, of course. Marathoning, mm-hmm. 1,500 meters up to 10K, shoes are really helping athletes, um, you know, take seconds off of those times. So you're seeing world records in the 5K and the 10K. And, and we saw a lot of records this summer or this, you know, this track and field season because everybody was running fresh. You know, you didn't run every weekend, and then on the eighth weekend, somebody said, "Hey, let's try to break a let's try to break a record." It's like, no, man, this guy hasn't run for two. This guy hasn't raced for two months. He doesn't have the wear and tear, and all of a sudden he goes out there and he runs a great time. So, yeah, no, I I just think you know when you raise your level of expectation, you you know you take you take your sport a little bit more seriously than somebody did ten years ago, and you dedicate yourself to it and all the resources that we have with the with the you know with the new modalities new technology, you know, in your shoes or the track itself. And, you know, people are just finding a way to do it better. We covered you growing up. We covered the Olympics. We covered everything about you, the gold medal. We're going to wrap it up in the next couple of minutes. Everything you read on the Internet is true, Dan, obviously. Is it true you're the Hopscotch world champion? What's up with that? I saw it on your Wikipedia page. Is it true? Because everything on Wikipedia, you know, it's legit. So in 2008, I did break the world record for the fastest game of Hopscotch. (laughs) It was a really cool program. Crayola was kicking off a summer fitness program, and they wanted me to try to break the world record in the fastest game of hopscotch to kick it off. And, you know, of course, because I'm the world's greatest athlete, I'm good at <laughs> as well, right? Um, but it was a really neat program. The lady called me, and, you know, we signed the contracts and everything, and she's like, look, here's, here's what we'd like for you to do. And I said, you know, I'll give it a try. And so in my garage, I drew out – what I thought, you know, of course you did. specs online and, and the hardest part is making that, you got to throw the stone into the square. That's half the battle is the toss, right? And so uh, the world record at the time was like 121. I'm doing like 140, 150s in my practice runs and I get to New York and we're having dinner the night before and I tell the people from Crayola, I said, look, I haven't even come close to breaking the world record. I, um, you know, how disappointed would you guys be if I don't break it? And the, some lady from marketing was just like, oh, no, we're expecting you to break that record tomorrow. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> right? And she's just like, oh, it would really mean a lot to us if you could. And I thought, oh, wow. So the next day, so what happens in a junket like this, though, is we're at Chelsea Piers, and we got, like, like a camera set up. And so early in the morning, like, when it, it, Dawn comes on, hey, you're on – NBC Boston, you know, and so I, you know, they're shooting me and I'm talking to the people in the, in the, on, on the stage, you know, on the, on the, on, in Boston. And then, you know, now we're going to go out to Philadelphia. And so I did about 20 of these and it was just talking about the program. This is the Crayola. We're trying to pledge a million hours of outdoor fitness. We want our kids to get out there and get active, but we partnered with Crayola because it's all about creativity. We want kids to have fun this summer. And <clears throat> so Crayola got a lot out of it. And then at a certain time they said, okay, now we start the world record attempts. And Chelsea Piers, where we were at, was outside. Yeah. And it started raining just lightly, just lightly. But what that did is it made the cement a little tacky. 
so my stone didn't slide. And so I, I'm, you know, I'm at this for about 45 minutes or an hour. And finally, you know, my, I think my agent was there and her name was Janie Miller. And she's like, you've got about another half hour and you got to get in your car and go to the airport. And I was like, okay. And so I'm still at it, you know, just game after game after game. And the tough thing is completing a whole game because you're trying to do it fast and throwing the stone out there. Your stone's got to land in the right spot. And then just miraculously with the right amount of rain, my stone got all covered with like the Crayola dust. It just started skidding in the right spot. And I was just like, oh, I'm going to have a good game. I tossed it out there to the 10. I hopscotched out there. I grabbed it and came back. And I thought, oh, that's going to be close. Let's see what that time is. And all of a sudden, the guy from Guinness World Records holds up the stopwatch and goes, he's done it. He broke the world record. And, it, and all these kids just mobbed me. It is the funniest <laughs> thing. But by the time I was done, that I was drenched. <laughs> oh, man, I was just drenched. But it was just, you know. So what happened was the world record that I broke was held by a guy who holds world records. He has like, he has a website that's dedicated to like the hundred world records that he owns. And they're weird things. One of the things he held a baseball bat on his finger and balanced it for four hours. And like out in front of a stadium. <clears throat> and so then, but after I broke the fastest world record for hopscotch, like three months later, he took it back. It's like I, I, maybe he couldn't hold, a, you know, he needed to hold a hundred world records at that time. But he did a whole bunch of hopscotch world records as well. Longest game of hopscotch, and inside the longest was the fastest, and you know it was just the most continuous, and it was really kind of interesting. But yeah, no, I got this little cool little trophy, and you have tons of press out of it, and you know, but it was all in promotion of the you know 2008 Olympics, uh, you know, with Crayola as the sponsor. Now, before we finish up with some quick kick, uh, questions, Court, you have anything for him? Yeah, um, I don't know if I don't even know if uh, Mike knows this about you, but um, you know, I just kind of want a little more information about your supermodeling career. And and wait, before you before you start, I, I have some uh, I have some show and tells. Okay. Wow. I don't know if Mike can see this from here, oh but somebody was Versace a model? cover model. Crazy, huh? I, I have so one tell. more right here. I like this pose. I, I definitely like this pose. So. <laughs> How did this happen? And I'm sure you and your wife have these framed in your house. I'm sure. They, they have to be somewhere. Those are on the bottom of a pretty good stack. We've got all the cool Reebok stuff on top. But, um, you know, I, you do all that decathlon training. You know, you get, in, you get in pretty good shape. You know, you keep your body fat low. But the Versace stuff is, is interesting. I love to embarrass my agent. So Janie Miller is her name. She works for Octagon now. But, she, you know, now she represents Simone Biles. But... Um, so that was after the Olympics. I get a call, and Versace is, um, they want a couple athletes to include in, you know, their spring catalog or their fall catalog. I don't even remember what it was. And they said, look, we'd love for you to come to New York and <clears throat> shoot for a couple of hours. And, you know, it was it was cool because, you know, they they gave me money to spend at a Versace boutique. And so my wife and I got to go shopping at the Versace store in downtown New York, you know, I got a tuxedo and she got an evening gown and yeah, it was really cool. But, you know, I got these cool sweaters and stuff, but it, you know, it's like, oh, this is how the other half lives, right? And, you know, <laughs> um, but I get there and it's so strange because in track and field, you want, you, you know, you do things, you, you stretch, you warm up. We get to this modeling, you know, we get to this, uh, to this, you know, where they're taking all the pictures and everything. 
And they say, look, go in the green room, sit and relax. We go in there, there's a bunch of 18, 19-year-old kids smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and we're just like, okay. And my agent's with me at the time. And she tells me, she's like, look, when you get down to your underwear, I'm going to have to leave. I've got to And I was just like, don't you dare. Don't you dare leave me alone with these people. It was, I just, it was such a fish out of water. Um, you know, modeling was so foreign to me. And I, I did a runway show after that. But what I was, thought was interesting about the runway show was you do all this prep for two and three days leading up. I mean, it is hours and days and days and days. And then the runway show starts and it takes like 45 minutes and you're done. And you're like, that's it? That's it? It's like, yeah, that's it. You know? But it was cool. So, and, I did, and then I did some, so I did some nudes for Herb Ritz and he, he did a Tag Heuer, he did a Tag Heuer thing. So I got, you know, I got to do some modeling and, you know, I, commercials, a little bit of TV. Uh, I was never in a movie, but what you realize is you're, a, you're an athlete for a reason, you know, sitting all day at, at the craft, you know, at craft services, at a, at a commercial shoot, all you're going to do is gain weight, man, you know. So I, I think about people that act and people that are in movies. It's just like, man, I, I was in the right profession. I just couldn't sit around like that. And same thing, modeling as well. But, um, yeah, taking off your clothes in front of a bunch of people, it's <laughs> a thing. But, you know, you, you, get to, you get to live with it forever. There you go. You're not Exactly. E- easily accessible on the Internet. Easily accessible. I didn't find the nudes, though. I didn't find the nudes. <laughs> Maybe I have to do some more digging. I have to do some more digging for that. It's the tag Hoyer stuff. But, and, but I, so, you know, when Herb Ritz passed away, I felt honored that I got a chance to be photographed by him because he was, he was so famous. And we shot, we shot where he lived at the time, which was South Beach. And so it was pretty cool. We did stuff on a roof and then we went out to the, we went out to the water and shot with me jumping out of the water and stuff. And it was just like, man, I got to shoot with her breaks. Dan, you ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? You betcha. You and I at a bar in New York City. We want to impress everyone there. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? Charles Barkley. And if you texted him, he'd text you right back. Absolutely. It's actually one of the best answers I've had. Court? <laughs> Okay, so besides the gold medal, which we all share now that you've won, <laughs> um, what, is, uh, what is your best or most uh, meaningful piece of memorabilia you own? Ooh, um, I've got an Atlanta Braves jersey. I threw out the first pitch in the, in the, in the league championship series right after the Olympics at the Olympic Stadium. They converted into a baseball stadium, and... Uh, it was against the Cardinals, and I remember I, you know, hung out with Dave Justice uh, and Chipper Jones. We got to go in the locker room. It was funny. My wife was with me. We go in the locker room, and she kind of buries her head into my shoulder. She's like, there's a guy over there that's naked. Why do the reporters in? Why do they let the reporters in? I said, it's, just, it's open locker room. And then it's baseball. But so, yeah, I got this 96 Braves jersey that I perished. That's I was, awesome. I got one follow-up. I got one follow-up. Did you make it to home plate with the pitch? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Mark Lemke <laughs> took me aside and said, man, let's let's throw the ball around a little bit. He says, you're going to you're going to be tempted to throw it hard. He said, just aim it and get it there. And, you know, I probably I put it I'd probably be through a high pitch, but I got it there. Best Good movie job. about the Olympics. <laughs> Best movie about the Olympics. Um, yeah, it's got to be Miracle. Miracle. Yeah. So you obviously you're insanely healthy. You're in great shape. What's your favorite cheat meal? 
Well, here's what a lot of people don't know about me. As a decathlete, you've got to get a lot to eat. And sometimes you can't be horribly picky, and it's not always the healthiest stuff. So, you know, it, uh, there would be times on a Tuesday I'd do two for two for two for five dollar footlongs at, at Subway, you know. So, but no, I am a sweets person. I love me some sweets. You give me some pie, some cake. Um, oh gosh, you know. And I think it's because when I was a kid, my parents we didn't get the foo foo cereal. We had Cheerios. We had we had. We had shredded wheat, you know, but not any sugar on it. So now as an adult, man, I love chocolate. I love ice cream. So I'm probably, I'm a, I'm probably a, a bigger bigger ice cream junkie than anything else. Okay, I got a part two to that. What did you eat before both days at the Olympics? Okay, so I'm staying in a downtown hotel in Atlanta, okay? The Olympic Stadium is south quite a ways, and it was a solid half-hour commute 40 minutes even farther from Georgia Tech where the Olympic where the Olympic Village was so we decided that we were going to move to a hotel that was right next door to the stadium it was a Hampton Inn newly newly created Hampton Inn and my coaches and I said we're not going to take any chances that we don't catch a bus or uh, we don't get our car on time and or that we need to show up so early that you know we're there it's tough to get up and sit in a car for 40 40 minutes and then go compete so i stayed at this hampton inn so the day that i checked in i went to the grocery store i got all you know i got my morning cereal and my granolas my fruits and vegetables and everything and i think the night before um we went to a pasta place that was that was sort of close by um, I had, you know, I had my, I had my pasta carbo load. I don't, I don't carbo load that much. I just eat a regular meal, you know, salad, pasta, bread, that stuff. Um, and then, but on the second night, <clears throat> excuse me, that was, that was, that was before day one. And then between day one and day two, we get done with day one. It's fairly late. We order food from the same place, pizza, pasta, salad, you know? And so it's, we, it, I was, I was in kind of a room that had, a, you know, some more seating and stuff. And so, um, everybody kind of sat in there and ate. It was my two coaches, my massage therapist. I, you know, got a massage and stuff between days. And then my, and then my girlfriend. Um, so I wake up the morning of day two and it's 6.30 a.m. and I'm starting to get ready. I got to be at the track at nine, you know, probably 8.30 for a 9.30 race. And I said, I got to get some food in me. And I look around. I brought all this, you know, uh, my mucilix granola and my fruit and stuff. And, you know, I think I eat a banana, but I glance over. And there's cold pizza sitting there. <laughs> I ate two pieces of cold pizza. Boom, went out and won the gold medal. That's amazing. <laughs> gives everyone else hope. It gives everybody else hope. <laughs> how I didn't get a how I didn't get an endorsement from that, I'll never know. Right? <laughs> and, and Dan, we'll finish up with this. We were all quarantined for a while. One show you found yourself binge watching that you never thought you'd be watching. And the thing is, I've watched so many shows. It's the it's the the chick from Mad Men. She's in the dystopian community where she has to bear children. The Handmaiden's Tale on oh, on the, Prime. I've never watched it, but I've heard that come up a lot lately with politics so, and whatnot. <laughs> the Handmaiden's Tale, and it's just like you know, it never really kind of caught my interest. All of a sudden, you start watching, it's like, oh, this is what happens when the when the the, the super liberals take over. All right, <laughs> I got you. <laughs> So, so, Dan, here's what we do, Dan. This was an absolute pleasure, but let me tell you something. So I don't collect memorabilia. The only thing I have in my house is stuff that people send me, but every guest on my show, and like I said, astronauts and athletes, authors, everybody, 
I sent something to them and they have to sign it. So we're, Courtney and I are going to send you either a Wheaties box or the Dan O'Brien starting lineup figure. We're going to send something to you to sign for us. Is that cool? Yes, absolutely. All Listen, right. please continue to motivate. You're the poster child of perseverance and excellence and endurance. And uh, thank you for doing this. This was an absolute blast. I'm glad we finally did it. But just give the plug where everyone can find you on whatever, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and plug the podcast where everyone can find it when it's coming out. Absolutely. So a couple of real exciting things and places for people to see me. I have just gotten started on a huge project that's going to be done in 2022. It's called Legacy Sports Park USA. And here in Mesa, Arizona, I'm part of an investment group and a construction group that's building the largest sports park in the United States, 24 soccer fields, 12 baseball fields. I'm the director of uh, sports performance and health, fitness and wellness. And we're looking at, you know, we're looking at uh, probably a February and March opening in 2022. So we're going to, you know, we've got Wide World of Sports on the east. we got Legacy Sports USA on the west. It's kind of a cool project. But uh, people can also see me. Uh, they can they can find me on my Insta, my, my Instagram. I think it's Dan O'Brien 96. Uh, my Twitter is probably something different. I think it's just Dan O'Brien. Um, but Adam Schmank and I will be doing the Track and Field DNA podcast. Uh, it should be coming out in the next three to four weeks where we get to know the greatest American track and field athletes and kind of what makes them tick and what makes them champions. Court, any final words? I just want to thank you again. This is uh, a dream come true. Dream come true. <laughs> thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I had a great time. And, yeah, and I am sorry we didn't, we didn't get to this a little bit sooner. Um, it was worth it, Dan. Work, you know, if we, get to, if we get a chance to do the Milrose games this year, I want you to be my guest. Come out and uh, come out to the, uh, to the armory, and uh, we'll root for some track and field athletes together. Dan, sounds good. We're going to take you up on that, right, brother? All right. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thank, Court, you, thank you so much. See you later, Dan. Thank, thank you. you.